Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul shall has no pleasure in him. Verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Every year in in March, in April, we set our clocks forward one hour. And in in October, November, about that time, we set our clocks back one hour. This practice is called daylight savings time. Um, How many set your clocks back? Did anybody forget it last night? Did anybody forget it? There's plenty of announcements everywhere. We often use the phrase, spring forward and fall back. Spring forward and fall back to describe this yearly practice. Now, I don't have time to get into all the history, but let me give you just the foundational history of Daylight Savings Time. Daylight Savings Time was originally suggested by Benjamin Franklin in 1784 when he wrote an article to the Journal of Paris suggesting that the citizens of Paris could save on candles by getting out of bed one hour earlier and using the morning light. That's how it all got started. World War I brought a worldwide recognition of it. In the United States, it didn't really become official until it was federally mandated in 1972. And it was mandated in 1972 because some states uh, used daylight savings time and some states didn't. So the transportation industry got involved and said it's too confusing for us. So Congress finally initiated uh, daylight savings time in 1972. Now there's only a few territories and one state uh, that does not participate, or two states that does not observe daylight savings time because Congress gave the states the right to opt out of daylight savings time if they wanted to. But the states that do not participate are the states of Arizona and the states of Hawaii. Also, America Samoa, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands do not participate in daylight savings time. So, in short, that's the history. I had a long thing that I did in first service. Time won't allow me to do it in second service. But that's the history. Just know this. Daylight savings time all started so you could save money on candles. Okay? Everybody got that? So everybody ought to have a bunch of candles this Christmas. Every year we spring forward and we fall back. Twice a year we have figured out a way to do the impossible. We can manipulate time. In the spring we skip an hour. And in the fall and the autumn we fall back. And we replay an hour. I wish the reality of daylight savings time was more than a manipulation of the hands of the clock. Because there's been a lot of one hour segments in my life that I wished I could have skipped over. And there's been a lot of moments and conversations and decisions that I've made in an hour's time that I wished I could fall back and get a do-over. But I can't. This is Fallback Sunday. And even though it's Fallback Sunday and we can manipulate the hands of the clock, 
something mysterious happened last night between 2 and 3 a.m. in that the clock stopped its forward motion and suspended time and we went back an hour. And though we can manipulate the hands of the clock, the Word of God is very specific about what God thinks about falling back. The first thing he tells us, and it's the thing I'll share with and then we'll go home, is that God reminds us to always to refuse to look back. Refuse to look back. We can fall back, but we can't look back. We can fall back on the clock, but God says to refuse to look back. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, verse 13. My friends, I really do not think I've already won it. About the middle ways down, verse 13. My friends, I really do not think I've already won it. The one thing I do, however, is to forget. Everybody say forget. What is behind me and do my best to reach which was, which, what is ahead. Do my best to reach what is ahead. He says, I'm do, one thing I do, I forget what is behind me and I do my best. To reach which, what is ahead. In other words, refuse to look back. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? I've heard that before. I've heard that scripture before. Do you know the context of the scripture? Do you realize the man who wrote that verse of scripture, used by God, anointed by the Spirit to pen those words, do you realize his past? He's not just talking theory here. This was something he had to do every single day of his life. In fact, turn with me real quickly to Acts chapter 6. Real quickly. In Acts chapter 6, we see that the disciples are being multiplied and there grows a murmuring against the, the, the apostles. The church was in a, started to fuss and feud. And what they were fussing and feuding about was that as the believers rapidly multiplied their rumblings of discontent, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. They were fussing and they were divided about people not getting fed the food, the widows. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And then it says here in verse 3, And so brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching of the word. Look at verse 5. This is the miracle. Everyone liked this idea. Anytime you can get more than two people to agree, you've had a a heaven-sent revival. Everyone liked this idea. And notice the first person they chose. Notice everybody was in agreement. And the congregation, the church, the early church, notice the first person they chose, Stephen. And notice it's the only one that they say something about a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, he was not just your regular deacon. Look at verse number 8. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse number 8. Notice what it says. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Then look at verse number 10. He was quite a preacher. None of them, none of the naysayers, could stand against the wisdom and the Spirit which Stephen spoke. 
And finally, they arrested him, and they take him into trial because they don't like what he's preaching. And we pick it up in verse 12. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us, which he did not say. Verse 15, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Understand, this man is anointed of God, and when they begin to question him, the Spirit of God came on him to the point that his very countenance and his appearance changed. This is not your average Joe here. This is a man called of God, anointed of God, for a special purpose, and God's hands upon him. And then in Acts chapter 7, the whole chapter, we read about Stephen preaching to these Jewish leaders, and they get so angry at him, they form a mob to destroy him. Then verse number, let's pick it up in verse number 57, Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Then they put, as he was preaching, it says, then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. It sounds like we're having a election. This is the way people are acting. Lack of civility in the United States. That's what, exactly what was happening. They put their hands over their ears. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want, they were going crazy. It was a mob mentality. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young na- na- man named Saul. Saul, who later became Paul, who wrote Philippians chapter 3, verse number 13. Understand, Saul didn't just have a solitary moment in which he got caught up with a bad crowd. Saul intentionally did evil things and was the number one enemy of the early church. Look at it. Saul didn't just have a solitary moment in which he got caught up with a bad... Well, I made a bad decision. I made a mistake. One time bad. I'm sorry. Wished I hadn't have done it. God forgive me. No. Saul intentionally did evil things, and he was the number one enemy of the early church. Let me prove it to you. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he con- agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men and came buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out, notice, dragging people out of their houses, both men and women, to throw them in prison. Saul's hatred for Christianity was so violent and so consuming, he was trying to eradicate the very globe from Christians. Then we pick it up in Acts chapter 9. He wasn't just satisfied destroying Christians in Jerusalem. He was going to other nations. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, verse 1, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any follower of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. 
So notice the Apostle Paul at one time was Saul and he spent his life. His mission in life was to kill Christians. His mission in life was to destroy the church. He had an unpleasant past. He had a shameful past. But Saul's encountered Jesus and his heart was completely transformed. But his heart transformation, get this, didn't erase the actions of his past. Neither did the transformation allow him to fall back and redo his past. He can't say, my bad, just forget it, let's go on. He tried, he killed people. He destroyed families. He took fathers from children, had them stoned. He took grandparents from grandchildren. He took husbands from wives, wives from their babies. This man was an evil man. And he couldn't go back and do it over. Even though God had transformed his heart, he couldn't go back and get a do-over. There's many of us who've done some terrible things. We've made some terrible mistakes. We've had unwise decisions. We've got ourselves in some messes. And unfortunately, we can't do it over. I wish we could. There's some things I wished I could go back and replay and redo in my life. But I just can't. We can manipulate the time, the hands on the clock. But we can't do it over. So what do we do about it? We refuse to look back at it. We move forward. You can't redo it over. You can't go back to your past and change it. it what's done is done. But I want you to know... If God has forgiven you, then He doesn't hold it against you. And all He wants you to do is don't look back at it anymore, but to go forward. To go forward. We refuse to look at our past. I want to read it to you. I want to read what Paul said in the Passion Translation. And I want to pick it up in verse 13. About halfway down that screen, pick it up in verse 13. He says... I don't depend on my own strengths to accomplish this. However, I do have one compelling focus. Everybody say, one compelling focus. focus. Notice what his one compelling focus is. I forget all of the past as I have fastened my heart to the future instead. He says, I have one compelling focus. He says, my compelling focus is not to go back and redo it. My compelling focus is not to go back and make amends. My compelling focus is not to go back and try to make it right. He says, because I can't. He says, my compelling focus is to forget the past and fasten my heart to the future. The Apostle Paul instructed us that we have to be intentional about walking away from our past. Leaving your past requires a compelling focus. You say, what do you mean? Well, listen, do you not think as bad as Paul was, Paul heard about his past continually. He heard about it continually. Everywhere he went, they talked about what he did. He encountered people who didn't forgive him. He saw things which reminded him of his shameful actions. He understood the temptation to live in regret and condemnation. But you can't go back, so he focused on forgetting his past. He focused on forgetting his past. 
There's a strange, there's a strange vibe that harasses us constantly. A strange vibe that harasses us and tempts us to live in regret. When we accept regret as a penitence for our past, living with a perception that we must live daily feeling terrible about what we did, we declare Christ's sacrifice insufficient for our failures. Let me, let me, let me, let me just close with this. It's up there, Jamie. Find it up there on the screen. All right? When there's a strange vibe. That's it. Thank you, buddy. There's a strange vibe... Let me, let me just let me get down here and talk to you. Something happens when it comes to our painful past. Is, is there's, a, there's something that happens that when we do something really bad in our past, and all, most of us, most of us have some bad stuff that we're ashamed of. And we, if, we, if we could give our right arm to go back and redo it, we would, but we can't. So we live the rest of our life with this perception that I know I'm forgiven, but I really can't be totally happy all the time because that would mean that I don't feel bad about what I did. So, so we live with this vibe, this kind of a perception that I don't want to be too carefree because I messed some people's lives up. I don't want to be too happy all the time. I don't really deserve that because what I did to my children. And what I did to my friends. So we live with this feeling that if we just live with some regret, that will be penitence enough to make up for our failures. Can anybody kind of identify with what I'm talking about? You, you, you come into a holiday season like this and, and you're just, you want to be joyful. There's something on the inside of you that makes you want to just break out in joy and be happy and carefree and happy-go-lucky. But then you, then you have to go be family and family know what you did. And you might see some people that you didn't do right or you lied to or, or that got hurt because of your actions. And so you always live with just this kind of little cloud over you. And you feel like that's your plot in life. And that's, that's the way it needs to be. And you need to feel a little remorse continually and not be as happy as you really want to be because what you did was really bad. And if you don't live with some regret, then you're not really sorry for what you did. And that's the way I was. I, I wanted to be happy, but I... I knew that I'd made a terrible mistake years ago in leadership. And the churches were affected. A couple of churches were affected. And, and it wasn't a moral thing. It was a financial decision I made. And it was a bad decision. And I felt like a failure. And I thought, you know, I can't really celebrate. I can't really celebrate because I caused other people harm. And it's taken them years to get over it financially because of the decision I made. So it was just kind of, and I felt like I needed to feel that way. That it was wrong for me to be carefree and happy-go-lucky. 
Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know. Well, here's what, I, here's what the Lord showed me. Anytime that I carry regret as my way of penitence for my failure, then I am saying that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient. Was not a sufficient sacrifice for me. I'm still saying I want to pay for my sin. By living in regret, whatever you did, whether it was adultery or stealing or lying or walking away from a marriage, or whether it was uh, some type of addiction that you got yourself involved in and, and, and raped your family or whatever it might be, caused harm to your family or caused harm to your, your spouse, whatever it might be, if you feel like I have to pay for that by not being happy, by not being joyful then what we're saying is, what Christ did for us was not sufficient. I'm, I, need to, I need to help Him pay for that. His death on the cross was not good enough to pay for my failure. His death on the cross was not good enough for me to walk away from my family. His death on the cross was not good enough for me to get involved in what I did. I need to pay for it. I need to pay for it the rest of my life. And I want you to know this morning, that that's what the Apostle Paul dealt with. Do you think he didn't deal with every day, I need to make up to these people. I need to not feel good. I, need to, I don't need to go back in this city and preach the good news of Jesus. I was in that city and I killed their family members. Do you think not every day of his life he lived with condemnation and shame? But he said, I have one compelling focus. I'm going to put the past behind me and I refuse to look at it and I'm going to look straight ahead. This morning, if you're entering into this holiday season and that vibe, that cloud just hovers over you, I want you to release that thing and let God's sacrifice on the cross be sufficient for your regret. Listen, He took enough regret for you. You don't have to live one more day in regret. Now you've got to have, it, it, takes, it takes a compelling, Paul said, it's a compelling focus. I've got to work at it. Because every day I want to go back and feel bad about what I did. Every day somebody tells me, I can't believe you're laughing like that. But don't you know what you did to our family? Every day I have to deal with those thoughts. He says, so every day I have a compelling focus. I have a compelling focus. I have a compelling focus. I'm going to keep the past behind me and I'm looking straight ahead. In fact, in his writings, in his writings, in the, the epistles, Corinthians, uh, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians, all of his writings to the epistle, he never brought up about Stephen. He never brought it up. We're always telling people how we messed up. And I miss, you, want, you, want, you be around me long, I'll tell you how I messed up. He never brought it up. Why? Because he had one compelling focus. I'm going to put the past behind me. And I'm moving straight ahead. Stand with me, would you?